A lot of parents these days are worried their kids are tethered to social media, constantly checking their devices, and using up hours the parents consider to be unproductive. Well, this year, Apple unveiled an app called Screen Time. It's designed to help users keep track of their own smartphone activity. But it also tells parents how much time their children are on devices and even when they use them. Here's Apple's senior vice president of software engineering, Craig Federici. You get a summary of the time you're spending in apps, how often per hour you're picking up your phone and what's drawing you in. So if in your activity report, you see an app where you might want to be spending a little bit less time, well, you can set your own limit. We know this is something that can help families achieve the right balance for them. And of course it starts with providing your kids with great information so they get an activity report of their own. But as a parent, you get one as well on your device. And based on what you see, you have the option of creating allowances. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, we look at addiction, both real and imagined. Later in the show, we'll look at a holistic approach to treating drug dependency. But first, many parents say their children are addicted to their social media devices. But our first guest says we shouldn't be using the language of addiction when we're talking about our children and technology. Trevor Hoig is a professor of English at Christopher Newport University. Trevor, you have been inspired by a TED Talk entitled, Everything You Think About Addiction is Wrong. Why is that? What had changed your view of how we see addiction? Oh, well, absolutely. I would recommend anyone watch this wonderful TED Talk by Johan Hari, Everything You Think You Know About Addiction is Wrong. And I pretty much agree with that 100%. I've been thinking about it a lot lately, partly because it's now exactly 100 years since drugs were first banned in the United States and Britain, and we then imposed that on the rest of the world, to take addicts and punish them and make them suffer, because we believe that would deter them, it would give them an incentive to stop. Why do we carry on with this approach that doesn't seem to be working, and is there a better way out there that we could try instead? So I read loads of stuff. You know, if we just think about how we think about addiction in general, Right. What all do we assume about addiction and drug use? People are weak-willed, they're degenerate, we can you know, punish them into behaving differently versus Hari's approach, basically saying this isn't about a question of will and we need to be so much more compassionate in our approach towards thinking about addiction, period, and not think that things like punishing them and further traumatizing them is going to do anything. Make it so that people can go, say, get help for opioids or other hard drugs and things like that. And you know, there's this wonderful quote, something like, we've been singing war songs to addicts when we should have been singing them love songs all along. And I just love that. He has a fascinating account of what happened to U.S. soldiers who used heroin during the Vietnam War. The powers that be thought, oh, no, these people are going to come back to the United States and we're going to have our streets filled with junkies when they come home. And it wasn't the case. Yeah, absolutely. And I think his argument in a nutshell is something that you know, addiction is, how's he put it, it's primarily about your cage or it's about your social support system. And so when these soldiers came home, you know, the ones who had the healthy families to come back to, the support systems to come back to, you know, they didn't, they didn't need them anymore. 
how would you transfer that to this notion that we have nowadays that this new generation is growing up so deeply into digital devices and that the addiction is so threatening to an entire generation that it's something we need to be deeply worried about and interfere with? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've imported the logic and the language of the war on drugs into our day-to-day relationships with technology. So think about things we were talking about with addiction in general, weak-willed, they're degenerate, they're trying to escape reality, and what should we do? We need to punish them, take away their devices and force them to engage in abstinence. And, you know, the bottom line is this is problematic for a lot of reasons, right? Psychologically, philosophically, rhetorically. I mean, to me, the biggest thing is it's about a compassionate use of language. So when you call a student or your child an addict or a drug user for loving, say, Instagram, think about everything that that entails emotionally, what you're telling that person. You're morally condemning them. Right. Right. You talk about an assignment you gave one of your student classes where you asked them to talk about their own devotion to their phones and computers and social media accounts and whether they considered themselves to be addicted or could make a case for what they were doing. Tell me about that. Sure. Um, You know, some of them were still using that language. And it was interesting to see how they were denigrating themselves you know, you could tell there was shame implicit in that. Another response students gave kind of the in-between, which is that everybody's addicted to technology now, so it's okay, no big deal. Right. But uh, they, they still were using that language. And then last, there were several students who were like, you know, I think that there's something to this. I don't think I should talk about myself as an addict. I'm looking for connection. I'm looking for ways to be human. I'm trying to bond with people, right? Some of them also said really incisive, intelligent things. Like for example, one student, uh, a family member of hers had addiction problems. If you had seen how addiction to this hard drug has destroyed my, I think it was her brother's life, you would never talk like that. You would never be so flippant. And I think once she was offered that alternative, that was powerful to her. And it's interesting to see that students of this, this generation, like, they don't come preloaded with all these assumptions uh, about technology as, as addictive or drug-like or dangerous. And so just the raw fact of being given alternative ways to think about it, I think, is, is liberating for them. What about teachers and professors who see students just devoted to their screens in class and completely tuning out lectures, class discussions, in-class assignments? What do you say to them? Oh, well, this is an an entire interesting debate, you know, people are having in academia, like every day I see new, new articles and short pieces coming out about these kinds of questions. I think technology bans in general imply that the technology is separate, that it's the separate thing than human consciousness, right? So your only authentic human consciousness housed in the brain, that's the only legitimate source of intelligence and creativity. Right. And so if you bring a computer into the room, you're somehow degrading your human essence by doing that. Um, On the other hand, everyone who's a teacher 
who allows technologies in the class, like they, they know what it's like to have students be distracted. Well, if this student's on you know Facebook in the middle of my class, it's my responsibility because they don't feel connected. And so it's easier to hide in the bonds of the internet but there are definitely practical things that we can do. Like Clay Shirky, for example, he, he's a huge technology advocate, but he talks about something as simple as the lids closed moment. And he says, you know, sometimes in class, I just will say lids closed and we all look at one another and, and reflect in that way. Um, he also talks too about teaching students and ethics of technology use in the classroom. And, and I've started doing this with my own students. And I tell them, for example, I say, look, I want you to think about the person sitting next to you. If you're disengaged, that's contagious. And your what's going on in your screen is probably exciting and potentially distracting to the people around you. There's an ethics or an etiquette to using technology in the classroom where we can do it in a way that I think is compassionate and not just simply reactionary. But we're still figuring that out. We're in the middle of a cultural transformation uh, with no less scope and power than, say, the inventing of the printing press. Do you think we're really wrong to question all this new technology and worry about its consequences? Where does this fear of technology and sort of new tools coming from? This idea that Nothing should impinge on our normal consciousness in its raw state. Well, I love the way you just put that, this idea of your normal consciousness in its raw state. When novels first came out, you know, there was all this nostalgia for them. And how many teachers would probably break down into tears of joy if the student wasn't like surfing Twitter, but they were sitting there reading Madame Bovary, right? Yeah. Um, or the example that I use in my own classes, and it's usually the first thing we read, a famous dialogue by Plato called the Phaedrus. And at the end of the Phaedrus, Socrates makes this argument. Basically, he's like writing on wax or on papyrus paper impinges upon normal human consciousness or pure human consciousness. And so you're degrading your human essence by outsourcing your intelligence into written text. When written text and literacy was becoming more widespread and people were moving away from an oral culture, people were scared of that too. And I've seen people make this argument explicitly. Nicholas Carr, you know, wrote this New York Times bestselling book. It's called The Shallows. And Nicholas Carr basically argues Socrates wasn't wrong. He was only 2,400 years early. And it's like, really? Don't you see the parallel between Socrates' worries and your own? And that his fears of people writing on wax or on paper is actually quite similar to a concern of outsourcing quote-unquote natural human consciousness into a digital writing space instead. And Carr's not the only one, though. The problem is so many people have reflected that this is a terrible trend, that we're actually losing the minds of a generation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. People like Carr and Bauerlein, I mean, Bauerlein actually came to visit CNU, I think it was last year, you know, and basically was saying this exact thing. We're outsourcing our consciousness, and, and with it, we're degrading the culture that we all share. And I think at the end of the day, that's just a super traditional humanist attitude that sees there's this essence of human intelligence, of human existence, and that you degrade it by any kind of technological prosthesis, whether that's a pen or a cell phone or a pencil or a computer or whatever. I vociferously disagree with that idea that there's somehow this line you can draw 
in the sand that says, oh, this is where my intelligence and existence begin and end, and it stops and starts right where my skull is, <laughs> you know, as opposed to thinking about my existence and intelligence now is omniscient. And I can plug myself in to be networked to every other human being. And the thing is, I would argue human existence is already like this. Thinking is already like this. Creativity is already like this. There's no such thing as thought and creativity that happens in a vacuum. Our existences are inherently networked. We can't think alone. We can't make alone. We can't, we really can't exist alone. But what about the argument that, that they're becoming sort of atomized, that they're just looking at, you know, one screen after another, flipping, 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 and that their um, brain muscle is becoming accustomed to a very short attention span? I think that that's one thing that's interesting about any writing technology. So there's this term called an affordance. People in digital studies use the idea that when we're in face-to-face conversation, we you know, can see one another's body language and different things like that. And then when we write on paper, we have to read in a certain order, and it transforms us cognitively, right? So if you live in a completely oral culture, your brain is going to be structured in such a way that it is orally oriented. If you're in a text-based culture, as we have been for 400, 500 years, that's how your brain is going to adapt. We have text-based, print-based consciousness. The problem is we think that's natural, big in, but it's not natural. It's produced because of the writing technologies that we use. So it's a similar kind of thing. Okay, in a digital environment, I'll grant this is causing cognitive changes. Writing different writing technologies cause cognitive changes, and a lot of them aren't good. You know, for example, distraction or other things like that. But you never hear the flip side of that which is what does the technology allow us to do? What new affordances are being produced? And this is actually something I'm excited to do at CNU in our new Center for Innovation in the Digital Humanities is I have some neuroscientist friends, actually many of whom study addiction. And I would, I would love to like actually hook students' brains up. And now that your brain has been restructured in this way, what can it do it couldn't do before? Every mode of communication has positive and negative aspects to it. For example, I have my phone, but I ha- I sit and I sit it in front of me, but I hide it so that I can't <laughs> see it. Why? Because I'm impelled to use it, yeah. right? So I'm not denying that that compulsion or habituation or urge comes. It's just a question of when we call that addiction to a drug, what are the unforeseen effects of doing that? And, you know, what if we chose different terms? How would we erase the judgment that so often comes with these kinds of things? And, I mean, that's really at the heart of a lot of what I'm concerned about is moral judgment, like the moral judgment that people pass on each other. Well, this is such a fascinating way to look at the technology age. Trevor Hoig, thank you for sharing your insights today on With Good Reason. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. Trevor Hoig is a professor of English at Christopher Newport University. Coming up next, treating drug addiction without just giving more drugs. There have long been medications available to treat addiction, but treating addiction with medication is not as simple as just writing a prescription. Nasima Dowd is director of the University of Virginia Center for Addiction Research and Education, 
She's also a professor of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences. She says the treatment plan for every addicted person is different. Nasima, historically, what kinds of medications have been available to treat addiction? So for alcoholism, we do have FDA-approved medications that are available, not very often prescribed, because a lot of practitioners don't feel comfortable prescribing a medication to treat addiction. And we also have medication for uh, the treatment of opioid addiction. What sort of medication is there for alcohol addiction? I don't think I've heard of that. Yeah. So there is the oldest drug. It's called antabuse. It's very funny. Every time I talk to one of my patients, say, let's think about medication, their first reaction is, don't give me antabuse. You take it, and if you go to drink, you feel very sick, and you throw up. So I have a lot of patients who says, absolutely not. But at the same time, some do really, really well. I have somebody else very, you know, who's a lawyer, did really well, and tried everything. We put him on interviews. He loved it. He said it made alcohol not available anymore. It was no longer an option. He said it's like somebody came and took alcohol out of the planet. The second one is called naltrexone. Naltrexone sort of blocks the rewarding effect of alcohol. So you can drink while taking naltrexone. But what it does is that uh, you don't feel the same type of high from alcohol. You just feel blah. So why don't more people take that? Um, One is there is this thing is we don't want to replace an addiction with an addiction. A lot of people who believe that it's all about willpower, that, you know, you just need to stop drinking when you need to. These medications don't work for everybody. So one thing that I've learned about addiction that I found extremely humbling the more I study it, the more I work in it, is that not two people with addiction respond the same way to the same medication. And is the problem more that um, physicians don't really see alcohol abuse as much of a problem as some other addictions? Part of it is true. Uh, Alcohol is legal. Everybody's drinking. We sort of normalize it. So therefore, they don't ask a lot of these questions about, is alcohol causing you problems? And when they do, the easiest thing to do is to refer them to 12 steps. Or to say, you should really cut back. Yeah. Oh, that's the first thing. You should really cut back. (laughs) And we know how that works. Yeah. And what about for opioid abuse? What is the most well-known sort of drug that is effective? There are three drugs. The first one is methadone. Another opioid is just like heroin or you know pain pills that people take, but it's different in a way that it starts to work slowly. So people who get high from opioid tend to like things that work very fast. You get to your brain very fast, you get a high, then you crash. When you take an opioid that starts slowly building up and then stays for the whole day, you don't get the same same feeling of euphoria. So all of a sudden, they no longer have craving to go get heroin. They take their one tablet a day, and they're covered for the full day. And even if they use heroin, it's sort of methadone dampen the effect of heroin because it's there in their brain. The second one is naltrexone, which is also works for alcohol, works for opioid. What it does, it blocks all the opioid receptors in your brain. When I put somebody on, on naltrexone, they can inject all the heroin they want. They're not going to feel any effect because their brain is no longer receptive. And the third one is uh, the latest one that is getting a lot of attention. It's called buprenorphine. Buprenorphine is not antagonist. It's not something that blocks the brain. It doesn't work as an opioid. It's somewhere in between. I feel very comfortable when someone is on naltrexone. Right, because then I know you can go and try to overdose or use anything. I know you're not going to die because it's not going to reach your brain. 
and go on the street now and offer an Altrexan to 100 people and say, I'll give it to you for free. I'll treat you for free. Nobody is going to take my offer. Why is that? Because people who are addicted to uh, opioid often, when they take an Altrexan, feel a little depressed and dysphoric and they feel like something is missing. They know they cannot use heroin, but they, they don't feel right. Methadone makes them feel right, but methadone at the same time, some people still abuse it. So what they do, instead of taking the tablet, they'll crush it and snort it or inject it, and they try to get a high from it. I imagine that more problematic is that most people who are opioid addicts don't come in for treatment, per se? Correct. They don't come for treatment until really they're suffering really bad consequences from their addiction. If you think about it, as long as you can do it, feeling good from it, why stop it? One of the biggest problems with this opioid epidemic that we experience is that there are not a lot of providers who can treat these people. And these people are not easy to treat. You take something that's give them euphoria and replace it with, okay, you know, go to work because work is really good for you. And uh, just this past week, I saw a patient who came for treatment of opioid problem, and he was injecting heroin and was having hepatitis, a lot of complications. So he knew he needed help. He came for help. But then he asked me this question that I'm so glad he did and said, how are we going to have fun? I don't know how we can have fun when I stop using heroin. What did you say? So I asked him, I said, when was the last time you went on vacation? So he looked at his partner. He said, vacation? Never. And then I saw a sparkle and I said, what if all that money you're spending on heroin every day, you don't have to spend it on heroin? What if you start saving? Do you have a car? He said, no, we don't have a car. And I said, do you get pleasure from buying a car and taking trips? And he's like, yeah, I could see that. And I said, then you save and go on vacation. It was really starting to talk to him about things that we take for granted. Nobody teaches you how to have fun in life. You sort of know, oh, I read a book and I have fun. He's never had any of these things. So with him, it's going to be a medication, but also a lot of support and learning and, and, and really help him figure out how to lead his life from now on. But it's very exciting, the opportunity that we can, how we can help these, these individuals. I'm curious, does he have a job? Does he get money regularly? So he, he has a job in construction, and he uses the money. So he uses the money to get drugs and make barely a living so they can't afford a car they can't afford a lot of things they never gone on vacation they can't do a lot of things because a lot of the money goes to heroin you started a program where you realized i can't reach enough of these patients on my own the best thing i can do is help doctors far and wide mm -hmm. acquire the best skills mm -hmm. for treating their patients mm -hmm. so uh, we were very fortunate to be part of this big program called Program Echo. You know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people who need help. So instead of putting patient behind the screen, put providers. I will say, okay, this is what you need to learn about opioid use disorder. So I will do a small training session for 15 minutes. This is the latest on opioid use disorder. This is a new medication. This is how to prescribe this medication. And then give them the opportunity to discuss their cases. So each one of them will bring a case. And instead of just me seeing six, seven, eight patients, I'm having a hundred seeing that same number. If you were now speaking to, let's say, doctors, nurses, and other medical professionals, even partners of people who are addicted, mm -hmm. what are three or four things that you would say 
with your expertise you would advise? So one thing I always say, each one is different. And instead of being, I am the doctor who knows it all, we become partners. We become, okay, so I, I always surprise patients when I say, why do you want to stop drinking? Obviously, alcohol has played a big role in your life. You've been drinking for now 15 years. It must have done something pretty good to you. Why do you want to quit? So all of a sudden, you have the person articulating why they want to stop, right? Instead of me telling them, you need to stop. And that's much more powerful than any, you know, saying you should stop and I'm the doctor, I know better. There are also some research that's been done that we're very excited about is about apps. Just like, you know, a Fitbit motivates you to walk more when you see your steps. Apps that really monitor your drinking or give you feedback and send you encouraging things seems to also help. Are there studies that are showing it's working? Yes. Uh, actually, we, we are working on an app currently for um, binge drinking in uh, college students. It's an app that sends you text from a provider when you're not doing well. I see that your drinking has increased in the past few days. Do you want to meet in person? Something like that. So it's not just an app. It's an app that is, uh, has the possibility to connect you with a real provider. I understand that there is a lot of addiction within the medical community, Mm -hmm. among doctors and nurses. How bad is it? It is bad, uh, but not as, I mean, uh, the numbers of addiction uh, amongst physicians sort of mimic the general population. And you'll think, we should know better. Uh, Doctors are humans. There are uh, some specialty at higher risk, like anesthesiology, for example. They're, They're given drugs. They're high potency drugs to others. And then you give it to the patient, he falls asleep, and you have a little bit left over in the syringe, and you'll be like, wow, if I take that, I'll feel really good. Uh, my husband is an anesthesiologist, and one of the training, I remember when he was going through the residency, is um, as spouses, they taught us to look at their arms to make sure that they're not injecting things because it's it's uh, being a physician is very stressful, and you put a lot of hours, and you see people suffering and dying, and, and it could be really, really difficult. And uh, you know that this drug can help you for just today to overcome this sadness that you're feeling or overcome whatever you're feeling. So it's so tempting that as spouses of anesthesiologists, they did teach us to look for signs. You're working on several new projects. One of them looks at medical interventions that can be used right in the emergency room after overdoses? Yes. We're, do- we're losing so many people to accidental overdose. We usually give them a drug that will uh, bring them back quickly from the overdose, but send them in a sort of withdrawal because it blocks the drug in their brain. So all of a sudden, you wake up and you feel a little bit uncomfortable because your brain is wanting that drug that was uh, taken away. So we usually bring them back from their withdrawal and send them home. And we hope that they're safe. So I did ask, I asked my patient, that's what I learned a lot by asking just directly my patient. So what they say is that, yes, when you leave, you're feeling uncomfortable, you're feeling like you're in withdrawal, you'll be looking for your next hit. What if we treat those patients right in the ED after the overdose, after we bring them back, put them on something like buprenorphine or suboxone? Because what it does, it takes away the withdrawal symptoms and takes away their craving. So when they wake up from it and all of a sudden they're feeling comfortable and may don't experience craving, that may help them uh, seek more treatment to say, this is how you would feel if you were in this treatment. We want to offer, offer it to you on a daily basis. And where the hope is that it will increase 
their desire to seek treatment. If you could wave your magic wand and give governors, let's say, tools to say, if you had unlimited resources, this would be super useful in communities to help people with this, what would you do? Free treatment. Free access to treatment. Counseling. Yes. Talk to someone. Well, this sounds very promising. Thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you for having me. Nasima Eitaud is a professor of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences at the University of Virginia. She's also director of UVA Center for Addiction Research and Education. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. Today we're discussing addiction. Our next guest has an ambitious plan to treat addictive behavior using magnetic waves to rewire human brains. Warren Bickle is director of Virginia Tech's Carillion Addiction Recovery Research Center. Warren, do the medical treatments we typically give addicts who do seek help actually work? The treatments that we have that are better than nothing, we need to make them available, and that's certainly a big part of the problem in the opioid uh, crisis that we're in the middle of. But also, we need to find more effective treatments because I am unsatisfied with the notion that if you brought a loved one to a doctor and you said, how's this going to turn out, doc? And the doc had to say, well, there's a 70% chance of failure. That is not acceptable. The solution of it will require us understanding how we do things to ourselves that hurt ourselves. That is, to me, the science of behavior change. That's one thing generally we're not too good at. As a species, we are susceptible and look for things that are brief, intense, and reliable. And that includes food and drugs and clicking a new web page and a whole bunch of things, and that grabs us. What is an interesting question and a broad question is, are there societal forces that are making us more susceptible to brief, intense, reliable reinforcers? as opposed to those that come from long extended experiences such as relationships, such as employment, such as education. The other thing that we're just starting to recognize is if somebody has a proclivity to addiction in area A, they're probably less likely to get um, screenings for diseases, less likely to um, do checkups, less likely to wear a seatbelt, What we need to stop thinking about a little bit is here's a person who smokes cigarettes and I gotta come up with a cigarette-specific intervention. Maybe what we also need is a recognition that they have a certain style of their decisions that they bring forward in many circumstances of the life that also are compromising in their their health or future health and there are certain um, things that we can do to try to get to that root cause as opposed to being selective for the particular problem uh, that may be presenting. Your lab is working on several cutting-edge techniques for helping addiction. One works with magnetic stimulation of the brain. Absolutely. This is an emerging and exciting area where we're we're using um, magnetic waves 
to reach into the brain and either increase activity or decrease activity in selective areas. So we put this coil on someone's head and we rapidly change the polarity of the magnetic field and that pushes through magnetic waves that affects the electrical system of our brain and makes certain parts of the brain either more likely or less likely to fire. In my laboratory, we're currently working on how to suppress activity in that impulsive part of the brain that wants it now, that wants to get whatever it wants right away. So if we stimulate that in the appropriate way, we suppress activity in that part of the brain when those delectable pictures of food are presented. So magnetic stimulation is just showing you what you want to target. It's not that you are looking for a cure that way. So we are looking to actually modulate how the brain operates so that it is less like the addicted brain and hopefully more like the unaddicted brain. Are you doing this with me, with people, or with mice? We're doing this with cigarette smokers and with obesity. And we're also um, have plans in the near future to see if it might be useful as an additional sort of therapy for people who are involved with substances such as opioids. And what the magnetic stimulation is doing is helping people make better decisions, you, tackling that part of the brain? Yes. So one way to think about it is uh, like on a seesaw, right? So we are trying to decrease activity in uh, the rewarding center of the brain. These are evolutionarily old parts of the brain that function to keep us alive, right? If we're hungry, it says says you're hungry, eat something. If you're thirsty, drink something. Well, those get taken over by the drugs or by the food, and then um, that's running the show. And what we're trying to do is make that not as big a player and make other parts of the brain that are useful for considering the future, for delaying gratification, for achieving important things that only come by some consistent effort over time, more functional through this magnetic stimulation. Are you seeing success? So uh, we are getting positive results. It is not ready for therapy yet. We're not ready to treat people with it as a treatment. We're still trying to understand it. Uh, there are many facets of this um, this intervention. How many sessions do they need? So, um, just to be just to give you a context, it is approved. Uh, this magnetic simulation, magnetic simulation, is approved for treatment-resistant depression. It requires thirty administrations of it to produce the therapeutic effect, according to the uh, the Food and Drug Administration. Um, So we're going in sort of lockstep. We've been trying five consecutive days and see what that does, right? Now we're proposing more. Are are you thinking that TMS with magnets can cause permanent change in someone's brain, hopefully for the better, or just temporary relief? Well, what I'm hoping is that we can shift the balance for long enough and perhaps as part of other treatments get people more likely to start the change process. I generally am not a believer that there's going to be one solution. What we need to think about is a arsenal of treatments that we can bring to bear for that person. And I do believe that in the future, magnetic stimulation will be one of those. Your lab has also looked intently 
at the notion that people with substance abuse problems have difficulty with time. And if you could change their conception of time, you may be able to help curb the addiction. Absolutely. So what we see is that virtually every form of addiction is associated with a real short-term perspective. People want it now. Now, we asked people that were heroin-dependent individuals to just fill in the back end of a story and talking about the future. So the control participants referred to a future of 4.7 years. Heroin-dependent people referred to a future on average of nine days. If you're only thinking about the next nine days, think about all the things that you could do that will have long-term consequences, but you don't care because it's out of the window of time that you can consider. And we also have shown that treatment success is inversely related to how much you can see the future. So if you don't see the future, you don't do well in the treatments. And what we're trying to do is figure out how to go after that. And we're doing that a little bit with the magnetic stimulation, but we're also doing with this ability to prospect into the future. What we do is we ask people to think about something that may happen to them a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, and we make them envision it so it's highly vivid. Who are you going to see? What are you going to feel? What are you going to see, smell, hear? How are you going to feel after it? What I find amazing is when we do that, their drug of dependence drops down. Just to show you how remarkable this effect is, if we take cigarette smokers who are deprived from their cigarettes and we record them talking about the episodic future events or the control events, and then we put them in a room where they have free access to smoke as much as they want for an hour, they smoke significantly less when they hear themselves talk about the future. And we're in the middle of a little pilot study where we're texting people who have alcohol use disorder, and we're seeing that uh, it's producing reductions in how much alcohol they consume. What I see a lot in various treatment approaches to addiction is we'd like the addict to come the way we wish they would be and not the way that they are. I think we should take a line from uh, Nirvana, the, the song, Come As You Are, Right? We'll take you any way that you roll in, and we'll figure out how to work with you. Have you experienced in your own family the consequences of addictive behavior? Absolutely. My father passed away from the secondary consequences of cigarette smoking. My cousin died in his early 50s from excessive consumption of alcohol. And it's painful. But what we have to start doing, I think, is start getting rid of the stigma, bring it out in the open, as well as making sure that people have a place to go. Well, Warren Bickle, thank you so much for sharing your insights and with good reason. Very nice talking with you. Thank you so much. Warren Bickle is director of the Carillion Addiction Recovery Research Center at Virginia Tech. Coming up next... Nurses on the Front Lines of Addiction According to the National Institutes of Health, opioid overdoses are killing 115 people a day in the United States. But what happens when even the nurses are misusing the drugs themselves? Kathy Collins is a professor of nursing at the University of Virginia's College at Wise. She says nurses are often the first to notice when patients are in distress, but nurses also face stressors themselves that make them more susceptible to addiction. 
Kathy, nurses are sometimes the first medical professionals who might notice addiction. Can you tell me how that might happen? We will usually be able to notice whether or not someone might be addicted or have the possibility of being addicted uh, when we are just really speaking to patients. Usually when we are assessing patients, we are focusing on the whole person. And um, those things would be things like uh, the environment, their family, genetics. One of the things that we a lot of times will see when they come into the ER is patients who are asking for pain medicines, and we will do some pain assessments, and their sort of reports of pain are not necessarily what we're seeing. And that can sometimes give us a good clue whether or not they might have uh, some substance use disorders. So they may be seeking drugs and saying, I'm really in pain, and medical professionals are doubting it. Quite possibly, yes. How do you deal with it when that happens? Do you speak to the patient about it? It's important to make sure that we are speaking to the patient about what they might be feeling and what they might be searching for in terms of opioids or pain medications and try to determine if this is uh, chronic pain or if this is a condition that they've seen a physician for. If it is, then we want to definitely find out what kind of treatment options they've had before. It's one of the things that's very important that I make sure that I teach my students all the time is that we want to make sure that we are not being judgmental. When we have someone who comes in who looks like they're drug-seeking, we all need to understand that addiction is not a character flaw. It's, it's a chronic disease. And if we treat it as a chronic disease, research has actually shown us that if we're coming at them with, uh, with a, a non-judgmental attitude, then they are more likely to ask us about treatment options. When it comes to treating patients who have known substance abuse problems, what do nurses see or pay attention to that perhaps doctors might not notice? I think nurses are, they're really the eyes and ears. They're the ones who really can speak to the patient and do the assessments and talk to them beforehand. And Again, if we're looking at something where a patient has given us a pain level of 10, let's say out of a 0 to 10, yet there's no vital signs, they don't have a history of chronic disease, and they are not showing any outward signs of agony, (laughs) then that gives us a clue as to what might be going on. And speaking to them about what might be going on outside of the hospital in a non-judgmental manner, I think, helps them to communicate and possibly get some help. Was there a point when you thought, oh my gosh, there's so many people who are coming in with addiction-related difficulties? I think it has really hit a plateau, or it really did hit a plateau around 2014, 2015. In the late 90s, we started seeing pain as becoming the fifth vital sign. So Hmm. we were uh, required to assess every patient for pain, along with their heart rate, blood pressure, respirations. And in doing so, patients would state what their pain level was. And if it was above a five, then we were probably going to be treating with opioids. Lots of opioid addiction started out that way. That was during the infancy, I suppose, of my nursing career. And the problem is, is again, you're you're sending patients out with 
perhaps a bottle of pills, that they don't necessarily need. Tell us about the region where you live. This is a rural region nestled in the Appalachian Mountains Mm -hmm. that is in the throes of a very widespread regional addiction crisis. Uh, There's many, many people who are affected by uh, the opioid addiction here in uh, this area. Employment is down. And unfortunately, the population here has been mostly a coal mining population. They're not able to figure out what they're going to do next. What sort of resources are available to people that want to get at the addiction and turn to the medical community? Well, Unfortunately, uh, in in rural areas, uh, especially uh, around here, uh, one of the biggest things that we can do is try to help get them into inpatient treatment, especially to detox. And the problem with with that is that they are not able to get to these treatment facilities because the closest ones would be 45 to an hour away. And if someone's lost a job... They don't want other people knowing about it. They want to make sure that they are taking care of each other. And a lot of times they see the healthcare providers as being uh, sort of outsiders. So they think that they can work it out within their families. And unfortunately, sometimes that's, uh, it's not workable. We have a whole three-day remote area medical clinic that comes out every summer. Uh, and that's always just packed. That's usually uh, or sometimes the only health care that they will get in an entire year. And they'll wait for hours in the, the heat to get care. Nurses themselves also suffer from addiction. How big a problem has that become, do you think? Actually, a very large problem. Uh, 10 to 20 percent of nurses have substance use disorders. And they're saying that 8 to 9 percent of that 10 to 20 percent could be impaired while they're practicing. Nurses have a very stressful job. A lot of times they're not getting the sleep that they need. So a lot of times they'll turn to substances. In terms of success, getting nurses treatments is uh, what's called an alternative to discipline program. That has been instituted in 43 states. And what that will do is allow the nurse to seek treatment without losing their license. So if they go through this program and are uh, successful, once they have that treatment plan going, they can actually do uh, return-to-work monitoring. They'll have uh, support groups that they go to. Usually it's a 36-month average time for monitoring these, these uh, nurses, and they can get them back into the workforce without them actually uh, suffering a lot of consequences for their addiction. How much do you think that high rate of addiction within the nursing profession might come from just having so much access to the very same opioids and other medications administered to their patients every day? I don't think uh, necessarily uh, the statistics support that nurses start addiction because they're stealing meds. It does start more from their private lives. It starts more from, again, genetics. and their environment, violence, uh, either from patients, sometimes lateral and violence from other nurses, bullying from doctors, and of course from patients as well. The emergency room nurse probably sees more violence than any other type of nurse. Um, there's also some things that can happen during their career when you're seeing patients 
suffering, when you see family members suffering, uh, and there's not a whole lot that you can do about it, that, that tends to make you feel, I guess, more helpless and stressed. A, a nurse, for instance, who is really trying to kick addiction, um, and they have a bad shift, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that narcotic looks pretty good at the time to try to take the edge off. How alarmed would you say the industry leaders are within the nursing profession about the rise in addiction percentages of 20, 30 percent of nurses? You know, again, this is a chronic disease. It's not a character flaw. And so we want to make sure that we're keeping the nurses that we have, especially if they're good nurses. I had a colleague of mine who failed a drug test. Um years ago when I was working in the oncology unit. And he was very forthcoming with the rest of the staff. He went on a, a peer assistance program that helped him to uh, decrease his uh, need for the use of drugs. And uh, we were all uh, basically kind of responsible for knowing that, you know, what he was going to to be going through. And he, he felt a certain obligation and responsibility because, of course, when you have a nurse who is going through this program, you're not going to be letting them give opioids or any kind of addictive drugs to patients. And so, you know, we ha- we kind of had to, to take on his load for that. So he wanted to make sure that we were all on board. And he did a great job. And within, uh, I want to say it was a little over uh, two years, he was back on the floor with all of us working, and he was doing great. Have you added into your nurse training programs at UVA WISE course information on how nurses themselves can either avoid addiction or recognize and treat their own proclivities in that regard? We do. In our classes, we talk about self-care and how important it is to make sure that uh, we are being good to ourselves and understanding when we might be going too far in terms of stress. And we do talk about things that we can do to help eliminate or decrease our stress that are positive, uh, such as, uh, you know, meditation and going out with friends or guided imagery or counseling. We want to make sure that we don't give this the stigma that they need to be quiet about it. Well, it sounds like a wonderful program. Kathy Collins, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you for having me. Kathy Collins is a professor of nursing at the University of Virginia's College at Wise. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services, and our intern is Adriana Gallo. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.